Our gospel reading this morning, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16, Jesus continued to teach his disciples, saying this, For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. And after agreeing with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to them he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right I will give to you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same, and about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing, and he said to them, why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, because no one has hired us. He said to them, you go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. When those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. When those hired first, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who have borne the burden all day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first, and the first last. The gospel of Jesus Christ. This morning, as you consider this passage, as you hear it ringing in your ears, Jesus challenges our tendencies toward jealousy, self-justification, competition, and entitlement. But to say that he challenges them puts it way too softly. Jesus is asking us once again to crucify the tendencies toward these things that live in our hearts. He's asking us to crucify at least two major tendencies that we struggle against in following him and trusting him. The first is the way we compare ourselves and compete with others, whether that's inside the church or with those outside of the church. And second, he is calling us to crucify the ways that we want to bargain with God and negotiate with him. Little Christians, short listeners, tiny theologians, if you're still in here, I want you to sit up straight for a second, take a deep breath. All of you children still in here, you're sitting up straight, you're taking a deep breath. Here's what I want you to think about. And here's what I want you to listen for as we move through the sermon this morning or as you read back over the passage. Do you ever get gifts? Do you get gifts on your birthday? Do you get gifts at Christmas? Is there a time when you, you can nod your head, yes or no? Is there a time that you, have you gotten gifts before? Yeah, some of you are nodding. Have you ever gotten a gift and then had the person who handed it to you ask you to pay them back for it? Like on Christmas morning, do your parents hand you a gift and then say, that'll be $12? Does that ever happen to you? No, I hope not. 
The gift is given and it's free, but just because it's free doesn't mean that you don't do anything with it, right? You don't take it and go, I'm glad this is free, I don't have to pay for it, so I'm going to bury it in the backyard. Have you ever done that? No, it's free, you don't have to pay for it, but you're glad to have it and to use it. If it's a bike, you want to ride it. If it's some kind of toy, you want to play with it. If it has a remote control, you want to stick batteries in it and drive it or fly it as soon as you can, right? Okay, this morning, here's what I want you to think about during the sermon. Jesus gives us gifts, but they are always free. We don't earn them. He doesn't ask us to pay, us, to pay him back for them, but he does want you to use them and exercise them and enjoy them. So think about what kind of gifts Jesus gives you. You could write this down in, do you have crayons? Do you have pens? Little ones? Short ones? My own son is holding up a tiny golf pencil. That'll work. In your order of worship, if you can write, or if you need help from your parents, write down things that Jesus has given you. It might be a family who loves you or friends to care about or a school that you love or a home that keeps you dry and warm. Write down some of the things that Jesus has given you and then write this down. Answer this question. How can you use this these things, how should you use these things well? Not to earn them, not to pay for them, but how should you use the things that Jesus has given you to really enjoy them and to enjoy him as the one who gave them? Does that make sense, little listeners? Sort of? Okay. Before I dive into the actual content of the sermon, let's pray together and ask the Lord to bless our time considering his word. Heavenly Father, you have drawn our hearts together again this morning to hear the good news and the good words of Jesus, our Savior. We thank you for the times that he presses on us and challenges us with words that are good and hold out good news to us. But we confess that our hearts are dull and our ears don't hear well. Our eyes are blind to the goodness of your truth. If you don't bring us understanding, we will twist or misuse or mishear or misremember. Or worse, we might understand well and then set aside quickly. Instead, Heavenly Father, would you give us the grace of your Spirit to transform our hearts by these things this morning, not just in this moment, but as we leave to live our lives with our friends and our families and our neighbors and co-workers in the city around us, would you continue to transform our hearts and our lives to resemble the life and the ministry of Jesus, your Son in whom you are well pleased, the Son after whose image you are remaking us? Would you set us free from the tendencies that want to turn your grace into a transaction? Would you set us free for joyful obedience and service and life in your kingdom? Your kingdom is wonderful and beautiful and full. Would you give us joy and zeal as we live in it together? We ask that you would do these things not only for our sake, for your glory and for the sake of those around us. We ask that you do these things in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. A couple of weeks ago, social media and news outlets lit up with the tragic news 
that Alan Rickman and David Bowie had both died in the same week at the age of 69. An actor and a musician terribly gifted and talented, uh, not always exactly what you would ask your children to go do artistically and at the same time contributing to uh, the wonders of culture and art. And the world grieved but Facebook and Twitter and news outlets were overshadowed with other news. That was the same week that the Powerball lottery was approaching a little over a, million, a billion and a half dollars. And so all of these outlets, all of these places for us to speak our minds and make our own ideas known out in the blogosphere, they filled up with memes of bad math and people projecting what they would do if they had these kinds of riches, hoping for money to solve all of their problems. And Jesus presses hard on this lust, this wrong love and affection and attachment to riches. He doesn't call the riches bad. He doesn't say that money is bad in itself, but the love of it, entrusting ourselves to it like a God to protect and care for us, hanging all of our hopes and dreams and wishes on it, these things are twisted and wrong. And these kinds of pursuits, these kinds of wishes and obsessions, whether it's related to the lottery or not, and actually, whether it's related to money or not, these kinds of desires to possess and to own and to be entitled and guaranteed certain things, this need to bargain and to earn and to merit, these things cut down our love of generosity. You and I enjoy receiving generosity, but we don't like the idea of generosity being generous. We like the idea of our keeping our own pace, earning our keep, meriting and having contractual obligations where we fulfill our part of the bargain and then someone else owes us, especially if that someone is God. It would be great if I could live my life in some way and God would owe me. I could be guaranteed a life that looked a certain way. I could be guaranteed a certain amount of affection or reward from him based on my doing. Jesus throws out this parable in the Gospel of Matthew, and he hasn't spoken in parables in Matthew's Gospel for a while. But over the last couple of chapters, he has been confronted routinely by people who want to negotiate with him. People who come to him and want to declare their own entitlement, their own merit, their own right to the things that he gives. They pray to him, so to speak, but face to face in his earthly ministry like this. Oh, Lord Jesus, you are gracious and kind Give me what I am owed. And Jesus is pushing back on this, 
Over and over again, he's just encountered the rich young ruler who wanted to tout his own obedience. He has encountered his own disciples, and he's about to, later in the same chapter, encounter disciples who want to be owed a certain position in his kingdom, a certain level of prominence and fame and authority, a certain amount of glory. We want those things to be our own because we've earned them. And Jesus has encountered this in his disciples and in those who claim some entitlement to be his preeminent disciples. And so Jesus gives them and he gives us this parable And it's a parable that can make us uncomfortable if we think he's saying the grace that rewards you is leveled out, but you still have to work for it. If you heard me read the passage, if you listened to Jesus' parable and you felt that discomfort that Jesus might be calling me to work to earn And yet, in the worst labor negotiation of all time, he's just going to pay us all the same, regardless of how much we work. Then we would have misunderstood his parable. Jesus creates this tension, actually probably more for us than his original hearers. We tend to fixate in our culture, both religiously and just our social culture in the United States, we struggle with these capitalistic tensions. We want the reward to be commensurate with the amount of work given. And then we learn in Scripture that we don't earn and merit grace. And so the idea of any work being anywhere in the equation alarms us. So regardless of how new you are to Jesus and his claims of salvation and the goodness of his kingdom, there's probably something here that made you unsettled. All through Matthew's gospel, Matthew has laid heavy Jesus' emphasis on discipleship, which can sound like a churchy word. It can sound like it only belongs in the realm of the religious circle and religious service. It only belongs in our life together as the church or the literature that we publish and put out. Discipleship is one of those Jesus words that we use that we sort of empty out of normal meaning. When Jesus talks about discipleship, when Matthew lays the groundwork and the emphasis over and over that was heavy in Jesus' own ministry of being a disciple, he's calling us to follow, not just follow like a Twitter follower, not just to follow along in our news feed, not just to follow and keep up with the daily events, not to just ascribe to some of the things that he says, but to follow him like an apprentice, to learn his ways, to learn his faith, to learn the shape and the contours and the rhythms of his life, loving God and loving others, caring for others as he cares for himself caring for others sacrificially, entrusting himself to God the Father over and over, even when it means sacrifice and pain, delighting in and learning to love the things that Jesus has loved and to call lovely the things that he says are beautiful. This is what Jesus and this is what Matthew mean by discipleship. And when Jesus gives 
parables of his kingdom, they aren't Aesop's fables. There's not just one lesson you're supposed to learn at the end kind of moralistically and you learn to be a harder worker or you learn to be uh, someone who cultivates this or that virtue. The parable is supposed to sort of stick in your mind the way a pebble might stick in your shoe. It's supposed to roll around and irritate you a little bit and call for more questions, and it's supposed to actually grow your discipleship. As Jesus speaks to us, it's supposed to stretch and grow our apprenticing, our following of him. So in this parable, he's not just teaching you facts about his love. He is calling into question and pressing on, maybe even bringing a little pain to some of the twisted ways we might have understood or misunderstood his grace. Jesus takes all of our tendencies to justify ourselves with the things that we do. He takes all of our tendencies to compete with others. He takes all of our inclinations toward demanding things from God. I have lived this way. I have believed this. I have studied this doctrine. I have read this author. I have gone to this churchy activity. I have performed this service. I have fought this particular sin. And God, you know it's especially hard for me. I have cultivated this virtue. I have voted this way, given myself to this cause. I have stayed up late in prayer. I have given myself to this religious exercise. Therefore, my life should look a certain way. I should be made comfortable in certain ways. I should avoid certain discomforts in my relationships and my work. God owes me a life that looks a certain way because I have presented him with a discipleship of this quality. Jesus says, you don't earn your way into my blessing. You don't earn your way into my rewards. And then there's a counter on our part in the negotiation. We look around at Christians or maybe those outside of the church around us, and we say, yeah, but you bless those people this way. You withhold discomfort from them this way. You shield them from some of the things that I struggle with this way. And God, you and I both know that they don't understand this doctrine, pray this way, serve this way, fight this sin, cultivate this virtue, belong to this particular Christian tradition, belong to this political party, vote for these causes, you know that they have not labored the way I have, and yet you give to them. Our biggest problem in misunderstanding this parable and our biggest problem in misunderstanding the discipleship and the kingdom of Jesus is that we treat it like a contract and a transaction. We treat it as if the gift of his grace, the goodness that he gives us, these things are gifts that can be purchased in a gift shop instead of gifts that are given by a Savior who loves and delights in us. 
And we misunderstand the parable because we only see reward at the end of the day when the servants are paid. Look back at the parable. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. And then he tells this rather elaborate story in a handful of verses. All of these workers called into a vineyard. People who didn't have work and service before. The goodness of the kingdom that Jesus is holding out is a kingdom that enfolds people who didn't belong previously and calls them in. Part of the goodness of the kingdom held out in this parable is the joy of service and belonging that the workers get from the very beginning. Not because Jesus needs to squeeze stuff out of us, but because he loves his vineyard and he loves for us to enjoy the goodness of working in it too. It's a delightful and beautiful thing. It's not done purely for the sake of rewards or a cash out at the end of the day. When our oldest son was very young, very young, we lived in a duplex and we had this giant red oak in Dallas, Texas that dropped leaves constantly. Gallons and gallons and gallons and barrels and pounds of leaves all fall and all winter. So I would go out with the leaf blower and I would sort of blow them into piles up out of the street, out of the driveway, out of the sidewalks, into piles, rake them up, and then bag them so I could put them away, mulch them in for the sake of the lawn. And he was obsessed with the leaf blower. He loved the leaf blower and the rake. He wanted badly to be a part of the work, partially for the gadgets. Some of you can relate. He wanted to make the noise. He wanted to blow the wind forcefully. He wanted to rake the leaves up and jump in them. He wanted to go outside, I hope. I like to tell myself. He wanted to come outside because I was there. He wanted to rake up leaves because daddy was raking up leaves. He wanted to make the piles because that's what daddy does. He wanted to be a part of it, and he begged to go out. And he used to love taking him out, walking around with a leaf blower bigger than he was, blowing up the leaves and watching the wind blow his hair and squint his eyes as leaves pelted him in the face. And he never once asked to be paid at the end of the day. He never once negotiated the rate with me. He just loved doing it because he was called into work that was enjoyable with the father he loved and the father who loved him in a task that was beautiful in its own right. It was fun to use the tools and it was wonderful and dignifying and in a way God honoring to take chaos and look at a beautiful lawn in order at the end of it and sit back and take a deep breath and say this is now beautiful. Jesus has just given us a parable of the kingdom. And the goodness is in the dignifying and beautiful and joyful and relational peace of being called into the joy of his vineyard work.
There's a temptation for us to read this passage and hear that our work and our service are meaningless because they're not rewarded on some sort of hourly scale. Jesus pushes back on this tension for us as well and says, I have not called you into a kingdom that is passive. You are called in by my grace. You are not called in because you're worth it. You're not called in because you're the best worker. You didn't try out American Idol style to get in. This isn't Survivor. We don't see who works best in the vineyard and vote people out. You are called into the kingdom, and there is a beautiful and delightful, joyful service to be performed because it's my vineyard. And at the end, everyone is rewarded. Both of these things are generous. Jesus calls us into a kingdom of joyful service where he calls none of the things I listed out earlier. He calls none of them wrong. He wants your faith to grow. He wants your understanding to deepen. He wants your doctrine to be rich. He wants your service to be sacrificial. He wants your fight against sin to be vigorous. He wants your cultivation of virtue to be joyful and full. But you're not earning anything with those. They are gifts themselves. They are joyful privileges for sons and daughters to enter into his vineyard and to work and to serve and to follow in his steps, making things beautiful and right. There's generosity at the very beginning and generosity very, at the very end. And if you pull back from this parable, Jesus doesn't make it explicit in his explanation to the disciples. This is one of many parables that he actually doesn't unpack and interpret for them in the following passage. He only gives this cryptic statement, the last will be first and the first will be last. This is not the only time Jesus says that odd little summary. Jesus has said multiple times, that his kingdom is one of reversal. His kingdom is one that brings humility to the proud, and it exalts those who are in low places. That was a Garth Brooks illusion, for those of you who know him. In Matthew 16, Peter cried out, with a beautiful confession that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, the one who would come and rescue them. And Jesus' answer to him was, yes, on this kind of confession, on this particular creed and confession, on this belief and faith, this solid conviction, I will build my church. Now take up your cross and follow me. And he described his own humility and his own suffering that lay ahead in his ministry. And the disciples were alarmed and Peter rebuked him. Because this upsetting reversal of his kingdom is counterintuitive for us just as it was for them. A chapter ago, and I've already mentioned this, a chapter ago a rich, young, powerful man came to Jesus ready to explain his virtues and credentials to be Jesus' disciple and inherit the kingdom along with him. 
And without rehashing all of his teaching, Jesus summarizes his interaction in humbling a proud man with the same sentence, the last will be first and the first will be last. Now, Jesus says it here again in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus will continue to tell his disciples about his suffering and his death and his rising. He will continue to tell them that following him will include sacrifice and pain and struggle for them as well. And all along the way, his reward will be guaranteed. All along the way, the goodness of belonging to his kingdom will be guaranteed by his grace and even enjoyed in the moment of work and service and struggle and sacrifice. There is good news for us here, whether you are one of the capable, if you read yourself in the first part of, I'm sorry, the last part of that sentence in verse 16, if you see yourself as one of the first, one of the first place in society, one of the first place in the church, one of the really good believers, the good followers, or just the good citizens with the right business practices and the right morals and the right professions. Regardless of how you might see yourself as first, there is an alarming but good humility that Jesus brings to you. He will take your delusions of earning first place and turn them inside out. But if he takes you as someone who's proud and he humbles you, he will not leave you alone. Remember, he exalts the humble, whether they come to him that way or he humbles them by his grace. Now look at the first half of that sentence in verse 16. If you were one of the first place people, just in life, just in terms of the American dream, or first place as you see it in the church, proud of your own faith and accomplishments. Jesus will humble you and make you last if you're going to be part of his kingdom, but he takes the last and exalts them to make them first. Not with their merits, but his. Not with our works, but his. Not on the strength of our sacrifice and faithfulness, but his own. But maybe you listen to this already knowing that you're in last place. Maybe you are not winning in all areas of your life. Or maybe you are in the church, whether this faith is new to you, whether Jesus is new to you, or this is something and someone that you have trusted for a very long time. Maybe you are aware of all the ways that you're last and low and small. Maybe you're aware of your failures more than you are Jesus' own faithfulness and goodness to you. Maybe when you come into church and move through the pieces of the liturgy and the worship of the body, you resonate with the confession of sin. You see your sinfulness clearly, but you struggle to hear the assurance. Maybe there are moments, maybe you pray or maybe you're afraid to pray because you consistently hear your own failures ringing in your ears. 
you see your own shortcomings most vibrantly. As you consider the gospel of Jesus, the goodness of Jesus, you can't see past all of your own mess. Maybe you're one of the 11th hour workers. You see your own service as paltry and small. You see your own faith as shaky at best. And Jesus says to you with all of his goodness, if you are last, if you are small and frail and weak, My kingdom comes to you and gives you my strength and my belonging and my healing and my restoration, my belonging to the Father. If you're last, I will make you first by my own divine generosity. I said it earlier in the service. Paul summarizes the point of this parable well without any reference to it in 2 Corinthians 8 where he says Christ Jesus being rich, being wealthy as the king of creation and the firstborn son, Jesus being rich became poor in order to take us and make us rich in himself. Whether you come to this parable ready to boast in your own first placeness, or you come to this parable well aware of how you have come in last. Jesus says, belonging to me and having a role in my kingdom is beautiful and good, but it's never meant to earn anything. Your belonging here is free. From my grace, I call you in. By the strength of my life and my obedience, the fullness of my sacrifice on the cross, and the wonder of my rising victorious over death and brokenness, you you belong here and your reward is secure. But make no mistake, you have not earned it. This gift is free. Enjoy it. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make these things more true of us by your grace. Not the reality of Christ's sacrifice, that truth is secure in his own work. Not the reality of his rising, that is true objectively by the Spirit's power that raised him. But we ask that you would grant to us more of his humility and more of his joy as we Follow him, entrust ourselves to him, grow in the faith that he has given us, grow in the service to which he has called us joyfully, not as a burden or obligation, but joyful participation in the beauty of his vineyard alongside him, working joyfully as sons and daughters who are growing to love the things that he loves. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would make these realities, this humility, and this satisfaction, contentment, and assurance, would you make these things more true of us? Would you grow our faith and our obedience in these ways, that we would reflect the character of your Son more vibrantly and vividly, not for our boasting, 
least of all for our boasting. What an irony to miss the point of the passage, to miss the point of your grace and your generosity. But for the glory of your Son, for your delight, we ask that you do these things by the power of your Spirit for our good for our growth and maturity and for the good of those around us who still need to be called into the vineyard to experience the same joy, belonging, and reward. Would you give us deep satisfaction in your generosity to call them as well? Would you give us, would you give us courage and joy as we proclaim these things to others? We ask that you would do these things. It's a work of your grace for your own glory and for our good. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.